Just a few months after the death of her 20-year-old son, Anna Nicole Smith collapsed and died today. We'll unpack the Islamic extremist imam's prayer at a democratic meeting, and today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. Are God and Allah one? Are the teachings of the Quran consistent with the Bible? Why is there pain and suffering, and where do you go after you die? You ask the questions. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson. So guide us to the right path, the path of the people you blessed, not the path of the people you doomed. Well, there's that Muslim imam praying again at the Democratic National Committee meeting. We'll talk about Islam versus Christianity, Jesus versus Muhammad. Later, today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. And I've got two professors from Criswell College right here in the studio with me. You get ready to call in. The number is 800-881-9270. 800-881-9270. Ask a Theologian anything day. But first, breaking news this afternoon, Anna Nicole Smith is dead. Her death ends a life some saw as tragic. More from Associated Press Entertainment Editor Michael Weinfeld. Even before her death, people could see Anna Nicole Smith had her troubles. Caroline Ray told us more than four years ago that she couldn't even watch Smith's reality show. There's something very tragic about the whole thing. The strange things Smith said and did during that show just added to her image of being someone out of control. You miss me? Uh-huh. You want to kiss me? You love me? More than all the raindrops in the water and all the fishies in the sea? That was Smith talking to her son Daniel, who died last year. Now Smith is dead at the age of 39. I'm Michael Weinfeld. All right, folks, this is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. And, you know, sometimes people think theology is um, removed, remote, philosophical, and dry, but actually it's, it's down where we live. It's about life. It's about death. And I can't think of a, a, a better story to show uh, the reality of theology in our lives. What do you think about the life and death of Anna Nicole Smith. The number is 800-881-9270. You may have a question for one of our theologians. I've got two professors. The doctors are in today. We've got Dr. Everett Berry. He teaches theology and church history here at Criswell College. I've got Dr. Joseph Woodell. Joe Woodell teaches philosophy and ethics and theology as well here at Criswell College. These men are here. They have their Bibles. They're ready to talk to you about 
death, life, heaven, hell, prayer, cults, whatever you want to talk about. The number is 800-881-9270. We have here today this breaking news, guys, that uh, Anna Nicole Smith is dead, apparently, apparently from a drug overdose. We're not sure of that yet. This story is just breaking. But reflections, uh, theological reflections uh, on her life. Dr. Waddell, what do you think? Well, we need to remember that God loves the world and that he gave his son for us. And, you know, obviously this woman didn't have meaning in her life. And, uh, and we need to—you said it's breaking news, and it really should break our hearts mm. that uh, it's very possible that she died without Christ. You know, I remember uh, hearing Jane Mansfield talk about Marilyn Monroe. They were friends. Jane Mansfield became uh, a born-again Christian, a real Christian, an evangelical Christian. She talked about uh, a time in Marilyn Monroe's life where she said to her, I just wish I could be born all over again. Mm. And Jane Mansfield said, well, you know, you can be. You can have a fresh start. You can have a new start. But I'm thinking, Dr. Barry, you know, this woman is being compared to Marilyn Monroe. I'm looking here at a, um, one of the uh, news stories that broke about her, and she resembled the late actress Marilyn Monroe, not only in her physical appearance, but uh, in her story. She was a Playmate model, but she also sort of came into the mainstream in terms of um, guests, genes, ads, and, and uh, recently diet ads. And um, folks knew who she was. But she had the looks and billions of dollars now after marrying this, um, this guy in his 80s who died. Uh, she had fame. These are, these are things which the world is telling us, you know, this is what it's all about. You'll be happy if you have all of this. Uh, but she's she's dead today. What do you think? What are the lessons, the theological lessons from this life and death? Well, <clears throat> her story reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes where the writer says you can have all these different things, whether it's money, fame, possessions, even relationships, and they all end up being empty, vanity. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is to it's one thing to die, but to die empty, that's what makes it truly tragic. Yeah, you know, uh, Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. He that's was right. a philosopher, but that's, I mean, that's down where we live. Money cannot fill that void. Fame cannot fill that void. Looks cannot fill that void. Power cannot fill that void. Pleasure cannot fill that void. Only Jesus Christ. Folks, your turn to call. Ask a theologian anything day. Maybe you want to ask them about the life and death of, of this famous person, Anna Nicole Smith. The number is 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. No question out of bounds today on this show. We've got Nelson on the line from Arlington. Nelson, thank you for calling. You're on the air. What's your question? Yes, sir. Thank you for your show. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, briefly, would you have your uh, guest comment on the Scripture, Judge not, lest you be judged, and where Paul says we ought to judge one another? And would you have them make a comment on their thoughts about eternal security, uh, uh, to the point of hopefully going to yes or no on that, and I'll hang up and listen. Okay, well, we've got two questions here. Judge not, lest you be judged. And I think it's very interesting uh, that we're talking about Anna Nicole Smith's life right now because, you know, obviously there are probably a lot of Christians who look at her lifestyle and say, you know, um, this is how not to live. And we would say, you know, the, the drugs, uh, the excess, um, 
the sexual emphasis and so forth. This is not how to live your life. And so we're sort of entering into, an, into a kind of judgment, Dr. Barry, when we, we start thinking or talking that way. But Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, what's going on when he says that? How, how should we interpret that? Well, as he goes on, he also says, with the, the way you judge people will be the method in which it will come back retroactively on you. And then as you read on in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how to judge your brother to make sure that you're not trying to tell someone to get one little piece of wood out of their eye whenever you may have a redwood tree sticking out of your own. So the point's not you shouldn't deal with wrong or you shouldn't deal with morality and spiritual things in other people's lives, but when you do it, make sure you're doing it by God's standards and not your own whenever you're violating the principles yourself. And another place, the Bible says, judge righteous judgment. Another place, uh, Paul wrote that we're going to judge angels someday. And so we, you know, we need to be judging one another as believers instead of going to court. We need, in the context of the church, to be judging between people who have claims one against another. So there is judgment. It's the right kind of judgment, the right kind of attitude. What about eternal security? Dr. Woodell, you want to hit that? Uh, once saved, always saved. What do you think? Well, and just to follow up on the judgment, um, the caller mentioned uh, that Paul uh, encouraged us to, to also to judge. And so we are supposed to judge false teachers and false doctrines. Um, and, and clearly in the New Testament, that's something we need to be aware of. All right. We're all Baptist. And there's an old slogan, once saved, always saved. But let's talk about it biblically. Let's talk about it theologically. And he says for it or against it. What do you think? I'm for eternal security. I, I think if somebody loses their salvation, that, that, that person really wasn't saved to begin with. Mm. Dr. Barry. Well, essentially, if you're going to talk about being born of the Spirit, being born again, or the theological word being regenerate, if that is a reality and then it's possible to, quote-unquote, lose your salvation, then that means you can be born and then die. You can go from life unto death, and salvation is about death unto life, not life unto death. Mm. Jude writes in Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Uh, Jude says, look, Jesus is able to present you in that final day. And, of course, Jesus said, um, if you're mine, uh, no one can take you from me. The Father is greater. No one can pluck you out of his hand. And uh, I've always thought it was very interesting. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Well, if you have it and it's everlasting, it's not something you can lose. If you've got it, if it's everlasting life, it's not something you lose. It is, in fact, by definition, eternal or everlasting life. Has passed from death unto life. All right, we've got callers on the line. We've got... uh, Shannon on the line from Oklahoma City. Shannon, thank you so much for calling. You're on the air. What's your question? Uh, thank you for taking my call. I've got a question about, uh, in the Old Testament, some of the uh, people we read about had hundreds of wives, and I was wondering uh, what thing actually changed that. Is it just for the elders today, that why we should only have one wife, or, or maybe explain a little Great bit? Great question, Shannon. Of course, you know, uh, when we talk about polygamy, and this is not a, an old question, Uh, Just when we're talking about Mormonism or something like this, actually today we see a resurgence of de facto polygamy with fundamentalist Mormons, also with uh, Muslims now coming to America. There's a good bit of polygamy going on. Um, And people will point to the Old Testament, Dr. Barry, and say these patriarchs had more than what do you say? Well, first of all, if you're going to point to the Old Testament, you're right. 
David, Solomon, etc. But the key point is to do, first of all, what you see in the Gospels when someone would come to Jesus to talk about marriage. Go to the Old Testament, but go to where it's initially established, where God creates Adam and Eve, one man for one woman for a lifetime. And then once you have chapter 3 and the curse upon sin, part of the curse comes in the marriage relationship. And once you begin to see polygamy, unfold in the Old Testament, all it brings is heartache, tension, strife in the family, and it's, even though you have it described in the Old Testament, it's never prescribed. It's never endorsed. And the pattern in the New Testament is one man, one woman. When Paul talks about the husband and the wife and Christ and the church, and of course the requirement for the pastorate, the ideal there, is the one woman man. All right, there you go. We've got Rob on the line from Dallas. Rob, Thank you. You're on the air. Rob, do you have a question or a comment? All right, sounds like Rob has left us. Folks, the number is 800-881-9270. Ask a theologian anything, Day. We've got Charles on the line. Charles, what's your question? Yes, I'm in Brazil right now. I just, just taking my internet in. Great! Yes, uh, it's about the, the, the holy day. Uh, I can't find in the Bible about Sunday, keep the Sunday. I used to be a Catholic. Right now I, I'm, I'm looking the Bible. I can't find anything that we keep the Sunday, so I'm hang on. Bye-bye. All right, thanks, Charles. The Sabbath or Sunday? Sunday or Saturday? We have Seventh-day Adventists today, and they believe that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast, actually, and that there's a kind of idolatry. That is the old line, Seventh-day Adventist position. And, of course, our Jewish friends still uh, are on Saturday, not on Sunday for their day. What do you guys think? Charles, um, typically we go to the book of Acts when we answer this question, and, and we see that believers came together on the first day of the week. It was a, a celebration of the resurrection and uh, this really was uh, the, the new precedent under the, uh, the New Covenant in the New Testament. All right. And um, Jesus appeared on the first day of the week. And uh, Paul said, lay aside on the first day of the week as God has blessed you. The offerings were on the first day of the week. And it's very interesting to me, whether you believe it's Saturday or Sunday in the end, Paul makes an interesting argument in Colossians. He says, let no one judge you in a Sabbath or a holy day. So actually, if you do believe it's Saturday and not Sunday, it's certainly not something that would uh, rise to the level of the mark of the beast. There's not to be a judgment on what day a person worships. So we ought to be pretty open on that idea, not too judgmental there. When we come back, what about these prayers from the Muslim imam equating Jesus with Muhammad? Are you one of the doomed, according to this Muslim? When we come back, ask a theologian anything. Like any skill, the more information you have and the more great people you can learn from, all the better. The Criswell College in Dallas wants to help you as a church pastor. Tuesday, February 13th, attend a focused day of instruction and preaching sponsored by the Jerry Vines Institute of Biblical Preaching featuring Dr. Herschel York. Attending will hone your skill and bring you to the next level. Learn from Dr. David Allen, director of the Center of Expository Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Allen's credits include being a Criswell graduate and founding director of the Jerry Vines Institute of Biblical Preaching at the Criswell College. Criswell College President Dr. Jerry Johnson will also speak. Registration through February 6th is $35, $45 afterwards, $20 for students. The Criswell College has more information at 800-899-0012. 
800-899-0012. Your preaching of the Word is a calling from the Lord. Join us February 13th at the Criswell College in Dallas. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. We thank you, God, to send us your messages through our father, Abraham, and Moses, and Jesus, and Muhammad. Through you, God, we unite. Can we unite with that slogan, equating more or less Jesus and Muhammad? That's the Muslim imam praying at the Democratic National Committee meeting just last week. I've got two Criswell College professors in the studio with me, Dr. Joe Waddell, Dr. Everett Berry. They teach theology, church history, ethics, and philosophy here at Criswell College. Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day, and I want to ask you men right now. We've got callers on the line, but I want to ask you about this prayer. What should Christians think when they hear someone lump Jesus and Muhammad together? Dr. Waddell. Well, even in the Gospels, you see on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the disciples, some would argue, are equating Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They're rebuked for that. And uh, God the Father says, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And that's, by the way, something Muslims reject, that Jesus is the Son of God. That is anathema to them. And, of course, when he says around this we unite, there can be no unity on the idea that uh, Jesus and Muhammad are co-equal. Of course, actually, they believe, Dr. Barry, that Muhammad is a greater prophet than Jesus, the final prophet, and um, that he uh, exceeds Jesus. Right, and Hebrews 1 makes it clear that Christ is God's final word, and the only people who proclaim the message after Christ are the apostles that are given his spirit to write the New Testament. And of course, Muhammad got his movement, gained his power by wielding the sword and killing others. Uh, Jesus uh, gained his followers by dying for our sins and being raised from the dead. A huge difference in the way they operated. Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. You call us at 800-881-9270. We've got Miranda on the line from Fort Worth. Thanks for holding, Miranda. What's your question? Uh, Dr. Johnson, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've got two questions, actually. Um, the first question is, um, I'm doing a study uh, in Revelation currently, and in Chapter 7, it talks about the 144,000 Jews that will be sealed. Yes. Um, and my question is, and I guess I'm confused about the the multitude of Gentiles that are there, and are those that are captured... From the rapture? That was my first question. My second question was, uh, with regard to the, for, the uh, forgiveness, and that only, as I understand it, Jesus can forgive our sins, but yet in, in, um, in Scripture, and I don't know where this is, but Jesus says that, and he's talking to Peter, stating that, uh, that anything that he binds on earth will be bound in heaven, and any um, and that he can forgive any sin, and so I'm I'm kind of confused on those two points. And All right, we better stop there. We got about as much as we can handle right there. One question per caller. We'll let you in with two. Okay, Miranda, I'll take a shot at that first question. Look, the hundred and forty-four thousand, as I understand the Book of Revelation, are going to be converts to Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus Christ 
from the Jewish ethnic race. I believe that because the tribes are spelled out right after that. And these are going to be Jewish evangelists who are believers in Jesus as Messiah. And I, uh, I think it's very difficult to pinpoint the timing. That's just my personal eschatology, personal view of the end time. I think it's very difficult uh, to get very precise about that. But we know from the book of Romans, toward the end, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, we know from that book that there's going to be a great turning of the Jewish people to Jesus Christ as Messiah in the end. And I think these evangelists are going to lead the way. Dr. Barry, if you would answer that question about... That second question, what was it? Repeat it and answer it. Uh, she was asking about what does it mean when Jesus tells Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever bound in, on heaven. What does that mean? When you read the, the discussion Jesus is having with his disciples, he's talking about the relationship that they'll have with each other. And when it comes to confronting one another with sin, whatever decision, Jesus goes back to the judgment issue. Whatever moral judgments you must make amongst one another, heaven backs you up. So uh-huh. when you're confronting each other in sin, it also has the same passage where it talks about where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So if you stand for righteousness, God will stand with you. All right, folks, today it's Ask a Theologian Anything Day. We've got Dr. Barry, Dr. Waddell right here. The number is 800-881-9270. We've got Joe on the line from Dallas. Joe, thank you for calling. Thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Thank you, doctors. I uh, appreciate your uh, insight. I just really have a kind of a practical question in the world we live in today. And that really is holiday-related, specifically Christian holidays, and I'm thinking of Christmas and Easter specifically. I'm wondering how churches reconcile the involvement of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny in their religious celebrations and what you guys are doing to equip pastors to extricate ourselves from these godless myths, and I'll be quiet and listen to you now. All right, Joe. You know, emotions run deep on this. And by the way, if you've got little ears at the radio and you don't want to hear us talk about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, you need to uh, turn it down for just a moment or ask them to go to the other room because we're going to talk turkey here. All right, Dr. Waddell, you've got little kids, and uh, I do too. What about Santa Claus in the church, the Easter Bunny in the church? Dr. Johnson, um, with our children, we just told them up front that really St. Nicholas is a historical figure. And uh, he gave gifts, and uh, he did that in the name of Christ. And so uh, some of these symbols, uh, I think they, they can be harmful, but if we're just clear with our children as they get to a level of maturity and they can understand uh, what we're talking about, that we can explain to them that these are, not, these are not the most important things, and they do represent some Christian truths, and we can use them. Hmm. Dr. Barry, anything you? I agree. I, uh, the pro- question, though, right. really is, should we— I think that was very helpful what you said, but a practical question as a pastor. You've been a pastor. Do you think we should put uh, a Santa in the church or have him walk around in the suit or have the Easter bunny or an egg hunt maybe on the church grounds? It's a tough question. Sure, and the caller, when he wants to talk about separating from certain practices, well, there are a lot more things in church than just Easter bunnies and Santa Claus. But there is a danger in trying to market the church instead of evangelizing and sharing the gospel. And when the marketing becomes the dog instead of the tail, then it can be a problem. So we don't really need to attack Santa or attack the Easter Bunny, but by having Santa or the Easter Bunny at the church, we may be doing the opposite, and that is reinforcing the notion that these are central to Christmas, central to Easter, when the message really is the birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Look, Santa and the Easter Bunny don't need the church's help. The world is, help, is promoting them just fine. Let's keep the message on the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I think um, 
interesting question. Well, we've got Brian on the line from Houston. It's Ask a Theologian Anything. Brian, what's your question? Well, my, my question is in regards to a number of resolutions that have been passed by the SBC and the SBTC lately regarding alcohol, <laughs> and that is, was the alcohol that Jesus drank and made, I mean, was the wine that Jesus drank and made alcoholic? Great question, Brian. Who wants to take that? Dr. Barry, you want to give that a go? Dr. Woodell, go for it. Well, in uh, you know, when Jesus turned the water into wine, the, the, the text says that the, that the host said that this man saved the good wine for last. And uh, some would say that, yeah, that, that was alcoholic wine. I tend to agree with that, and that the alcoholic wine that Jesus made and drank uh, did have alcohol content. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean there are not some pragmatic reasons that today in our particular culture that we shouldn't avoid or even abstain from alcoholic beverages. Mm. Dr. Barry? Also, too, uh, I've heard some who argue that it wasn't, that it was non-alcoholic, but then they'll make the point, and Jesus didn't drink it. Mm. So it's kind of a catch-22, but I agree with my colleague. It was alcoholic, but Mm. that doesn't mean it's equivalent to a shot of Jack Daniels or vodka either. Yeah. There have been some interesting articles written uh, by some professors at DTS through the years and also reprinted in Christianity Today, which show historically that um, alcohol was used in biblical times in very small amounts in with these uh, juices and so forth to um, as a purifying factor, and that, uh, in fact, anything that you go and buy in a liquor store today would, would be much stronger. So it would take a lot more of this kind of a drink to get drunk than it would take today, for instance, to get drunk. I think that's very interesting. But there are a lot of Christians, and I want to mention this, through the concern that the, the curse that's in Habakkuk, that Jesus, by creating alcoholic wine, would actually be coming under that curse in the book of Habakkuk, which says, woe to the one who provides strong drink. Woe to the one who gets uh, the, the other guy drunk. And so I think we want to be very careful. Whatever we say about whatever Jesus uh, made there at that wedding, that he would not have made something that would have gotten these people drunk, because I think that would have been um, putting him under that kind of a curse. I'm going to answer your question, Brian, and say, did he create wine that was alcoholic? I'm going to say, we don't know. But we're just guessing today. And sometimes theologians do that. And sometimes the best answer is to say, the text really doesn't address that. The text does not specifically address that. Well, we've got Bob on the line from Terrell. The number is 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. Bob, what's your question today? Yes, Dr. Johnson. When I'm talking to uh, people of the uh, Muslim faith, they uh, talk to me and everything, and I try to address them that you come and uh, you try to convert people by saying that the only way they can become Muslims and you get to heaven is by killing and uh, murdering people. And I worship a God that the only way you can become saved is by the blood of Christ. Hey, thank you. Hey, we got to go, Bob. We're out of time. But I think that sets us up really well for the next segment because are all religions the same? Do we're all we worshiping the same God? Are we worshiping the same God? Is the Muslim God Allah, the God of the Bible, Jehovah? Is the Quran a holy book or a bogus book? 
When we come back, we're going to contrast Christianity and Islam. We're going to look at that imam's prayer at the Democratic National Committee. We're all going to also talk about Hillary Clinton and her socialist vision for health care and taking profits. Ask a theologian anything, Dave. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. So guide us to the right path, the path of the people you blessed, not the path of the people you doomed. Are you one of the doomed? That was the prayer of an imam, a Muslim imam, at the Democratic National Committee meeting just this past week. What if a Christian would have got up and prayed about the people who are blessed and the people who are doomed? I think there might have been a media outcry about this. We're going to talk about it in a moment with two Criswell College professors, Dr. Everett Berry and uh, Dr. Joseph Waddell, teach theology and ethics here at Criswell College. We'll be talking to them about Islam and Christianity. Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. The number is 800-881-9270. But first, we're going to callers on the line. We've got Laura on the line from Ennis. Laura, thank you for holding. What's your question? Thank you, Doctor. Um, my question, I'd like for someone to elaborate a little further on the eternal salvation question. Um, I do understand um, once uh, you, receive, you are saved, then you are forever saved. However, Hebrews 10.26 tells us, if you continue to sin after receiving the good news, then there is no salvation yes. for you and only the judgment of the enemy. Um, so, and the prime example would be priests and people connected to the clergy who have abused children that has been coming out in the media over the last five to seven years. Are the marriages that were performed by these clergy recognized in the eyes of God since these people um, evidently are not, they're not holy? All right, Laura, look, that's two or three questions out there. We'll, we'll, we'll take that first question, though. I think that's the, the nub of the issue there. Uh, Dr. Barry, there are warning passages in Hebrews and elsewhere, First John, which seem to raise a question mark over the doctrine of eternal security how do you see those warning passages, uh, like "Don't fall away" and "Don't sin"? Or uh, how do you? What do you think about that? Well, in Hebrews, just in just a few words here, the issue for the audience in Hebrews entails either Jewish believers or Gentiles who were uh, practicing the Jewish faith who became Christians. And they're considering, you read the letter, you find out that they've lost uh, their possessions, some of them lost their family members, they're going through persecution, and they're being tempted to go back to Judaism, reject their Christianity, and go back to their original uh, Jewish faith. And the author basically spends the whole letter telling him that Jesus Christ is the consummation of everything the Old Testament uh, prophesied. And he makes the point in chapter 10 that, look, if you want to have the knowledge of the truth and then go back to where you originally came from, you don't have any provision. If you're going to abandon Christ, then you have no sacrifice for sins. And so the only hope you have is to stay in the faith. And if you leave the faith, then, as you read in other passages, then you never were really in the faith in the first place. All right. So there's a a kind of a, a specific kind of a warning. And I would just add to that that these warning passages are real. And that is, um, it's very clear if we're not living the Christian life in the New Testament, we are told we cannot have assurance of our salvation. And so that is a, a kind of a warning. And, uh, but all true believers 
are preserved or persevere to the end. That's clearly taught as well. There seems to be a tension there, but I think it's a healthy tension that we never presume upon God's grace. We must show the evidence of living uh, and being a true believer. Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. Anything Day. The number is 800-881-9270. You give us a call. We've got Jerry on the line from Lancaster. Jerry, what do you think? Well, my question is about tattoos or what is now known as body art. Does the Bible uh, specifically speak about this subject? All right. That's very popular today, Jerry. Let's talk about it. A lot of folks uh, getting more and more tattoos, and it's not just tattoos. It's... Uh, Earrings and nose rings and lip rings and rings in places we can't talk about. What Does the Bible address this, Dr. Waddell? Well, we see references to it in the Old Testament and the law. and uh, But now if you, if you say that based on these laws that uh, we can't get a tattoo, then you might also ought to uh, say that we ought to build a railing around the top of our roof so people don't fall off and all sorts of other details. Um, no mixed materials in our clothes. Sure, no exactly. weeds growing on our roof and things like that. So there are things that we can do that are, are not prudent, but that may not be uh, entirely sinful. Michael Medved makes the point that uh, it's usually the primitive cultures that are doing these body piercings and tattoos, and a lot of times it does have to do with uh, animistic religions and these sorts of things. That may not be the case in our culture today, um, and, and we ought to be careful uh, to condemn them in that way. Well, I would just add to that, you know, any time a tattoo or a piece of jewelry has a, a pagan or an occult connection, we can say categorically that would be forbidden by Scripture. Uh, the rest of it may just be bad taste. All right, folks, let's go back to um, Ask a Theologian Anything Day. The line is 800-881-9270. What is your question? We've been talking about Anna Nicole Smith. She died today. We've been talking about this Muslim imam's prayer. We've got Rhonda on the line from McKinney. Rhonda, what is your question? Um, hello. Uh, my question is uh, regarding heaven. Um, I'm a believer, but I've always struggled with the issue of death and being fearful of death and the reality of heaven. I just I guess I just can't grasp the fact that when I die, I'm actually just going to be more than just death. And what are we going to do in heaven forever and ever and ever? I guess that just blows my mind, the forever and ever and ever. Thank you so much, uh, Rhonda. I think that's a, a great question. I'm just going to read a scripture and ask these men to talk about it. And it's John 14, because I think it directly addresses you. You have a fundamental belief in God, which is very good. So here's what Jesus would say. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is a place, not just a mode of existence, not just a... a a dimension of time, but it is actually a place, a prepared place. Gentlemen, you have anything to add to that? Well, I would also add for her that heaven as we have it today will not be forever. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and our our eternal state will be spent on a new earth in a physical, redeemed state. You know, I don't want to add something to that because Jesus created us 
as uh, body-soul unities. And I think a lot of Christians think, well, we're, our spirits are just going to go to heaven after we die, and it's going to be that always. The doctrine of the resurrection is so important because God means for us to have a body forever, and that existence is going to involve eating and sleeping and feeling and walking and running and doing things and doing work and serving. And the enjoyments on earth are just a foretaste to the spiritual and physical enjoyments we're going to have. And, of course, the rest of this story is so important, Rhonda, uh, you remember Philip said, Lord, uh, Thomas said, where are you going? How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so it's so important to look to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life if you're going to go uh, to heaven. Well, let's listen once again to the Muslim imam. This is an excerpt where he prays about the people who are blessed and the people who are doomed. So guide us to the right path, the path of the people you blessed, not the path of the people you doomed. All right, folks, what does this Muslim imam mean praying at the Democratic National Committee about the people who are blessed and the people who are doomed? We've actually got a caller on the line that I ha has a question, I think, that might relate. Eric on the line from Fort Worth. Eric, what is your question? Well, I'd like to say first uh, that I've spent time in two Islamic countries, and you're very true that uh, spend time in an, Isla in an Islamic country, and all world religions are not the same. Mm. The whole society is just different. Mm. Um, but I, I wanted to say that I've been reading in Genesis, and very surprised at how much God took care of Hagar and took care of Ishmael, Ishmael. and mm. he was even circumcised. And so... There were thousands of years that they were possibly Jehovah followers, and uh, Muhammad didn't come till about 500 years uh, after Christ. Yes. So is, there, is that effective, talking about that with Muslims? And I, I never hear that addressed much about how much God has Thanks, taken care Eric. of Ishmael. I think it's a very important question. Uh, Dr. Barry, uh, this Muslim imam framed about the people whom God has blessed and, and, and the people who God has doomed. Of course, for a Muslim, what would that mean? Do you, think, do you think he's talking about Jews and Arabs? I can only think of two options, either believers in Allah versus infidels who do not, or the descendants of Ishmael versus the descendants of Isaac. That those are the only two options that seem to make sense to me. Wow. And what about the caller's question about uh, Ishmael? Well, when you read the story of Hagar, she's really put in a bad situation. You find out that God has promised Abraham that they're going to have a son, and the timing doesn't work out, which a lot of times that happens when God makes promises. And Sarai, her name then, Sarah, tells Abraham to try to have a child with a handmaiden, and then once that happens, Hagar is put in a bad situation. So God intervenes to take care of her, even in the midst of a plan that Sarah had that backfired. And so, yes, God does make, make provisions for them. But, you know, I think this gets to the nub of the issue, the contrast between Islam and Christianity, because uh, what we learn from the Hagar-Ishmael story is God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is loving, um, God is the God who sees you. The God who sees is, is the revelation to Hagar. And, you know, as I look at Islam, it is a religion where God is powerful, God is righteous, God is just. We affirm all of that. But they do not emphasize the personal relationship, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. 
the people you bless, the people you doom. When we come back, it's still Ask a Theologian Anything Day. The number is 800-881-9270. We've got questions about cremation coming up and the keys to the kingdom. Don't miss that. We'll try to fit in Hillary Clinton on socialism. Does theology address socialism at all? It's Jerry Johnson live from Criswell College. Like any skill, the more information you have and the more great people you can learn from, all the better. The Criswell College in Dallas wants to help you as a church pastor. Tuesday, February 13th, attend a focused day of instruction and preaching sponsored by the Jerry Vines Institute of Biblical Preaching featuring Dr. Herschel York. Attending will hone your skill and bring you to the next level. Learn from Dr. David Allen, director of the Center of Expository Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Allen's credits include being a Criswell graduate and founding director of the Jerry Vines Institute of Biblical Preaching at the Criswell College. Criswell College President Dr. Jerry Johnson will also speak. Registration through February 6th is $35, $45 afterwards, $20 for students. The Griswold College has more information at 800-899-0012. 800-899-0012. Your preaching of the Word is a calling from the Lord. Join us February 13th at the Criswell College in Dallas. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. And help us to stop the war and violence and oppression and occupation. Help us stop the oppression and occupation. That's the prayer of the Muslim imam praying at the Democratic National Committee meeting. What does he mean by that? Look, there was a time when Christians dominated North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. And after that, the Muslims came in and occupied North Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. And Jews, what about the Jews in the Middle East? There was a time when they inhabited, settled, populated the Middle East. Now, Muslims control most of the, Who is the occupier here? Who is the oppressor. And what do the Democrats mean by having this guy pray at their meeting and sending out this kind of message in a time of war? Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. I've got two Criswell profs right here in the studio with me. Dr. Joe Woodell, Dr. Everett Berry, thank you for being with us. Let's go right to the phones. Brett on the line from Burleson. Brett, what is your question? Hey, yes, sir. Uh, thank you for your program. I uh, enjoyed listening to it on the way home um, this evening. Um, but my question is, it has to do something with what was alluded to earlier. It had, uh, when, whatever you bind on earth will be bound into heaven when Jesus is talking to Peter. But right before that, he says, I will give you to the, the kingdom, uh, I will give you the keys yes. of the kingdom of heaven. What specifically is he talking about? There? Great question. Dr. Barry, what does Jesus mean? I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, Jesus says this as he's talking about his church. He's talking about Peter as well. But what's going on there? Well, the, the earlier passage about binding and loosing is in Matthew 18. Here in Matthew 16, this is after the, the uh, well-known profession that Peter has that Jesus is, is Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't give Peter any credit for that. It's revealed uh, by the Father to Peter. And then in verse 18, he commends him... By, but, but commends him by making a 
promise of the profession that Peter makes. In verse 18, he tells him that upon the rock of that confession, he will build his church, and then the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the reason the gates of hell will not prevail is because the keys of heaven will be given to his servants, given to his church to fight and war against the kingdom of darkness. And this, to me, reinforces the doctrine of the church. Uh, Both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, whether it's about church discipline or this remission of sins, it's about the the church as the body of Christ and their role in sharing the gospel and proclaiming salvation and the good news and also bringing reconciliation when people are at odds with one another. And yes, there's some keys there. There's some authority there in the church to minister in his name. We've got Debbie on the line from Weatherford. Debbie, what's your question? Hi, Dr. Jones. Um, My question is, how does the Bible um, address the topic of cremation? And also, uh, real quick, you were just previously speaking about Hagar. I also wondered um, if uh, you would see Hagar as maybe an innocent bystander that, you know, was overcome by the situation. And I'll just hang up and listen. Thanks so much, Debbie, for that call. Dr. Woodell, um, what do you think about cremation? I'm noticing today, you know, old assumptions that everyone will be embalmed and buried in the United States, a, a renewed trend now towards cremation. And a lot of Christians uh, kind of uneasy about this. What do you think about it? Well, to start with, I don't, I don't know that there's anything inherently sinful about cremation. Now, for Christians, we, we embalm, we bury the body uh, as sort of a symbol of what's to come. This body's going to be resurrected. And so as a testimony to believers and to non-believers, we, we bury our dead. We don't cremate them. Uh, but if someone should choose to do that... Um, then there's nothing inherently sinful about that. And we should also keep in mind that, that pagan cultures uh, embalmed their dead. The Egyptians did this as well. So it's not specifically a Christian practice. That's right. Well, I want to say to this, you know, is um, I am concerned that in cremation, a lot of Christians are thinking that the body is not important. Maybe they don't mean um, to be uh, denying the resurrection, but uh, in Western culture, the, uh, the, uh, the practice of cremation was kind of a refutation of the doctrine of, of resurrection. And I'm, I'm do con- I am concerned that uh, some American Christians are, are thinking the body is not important or the do- body doesn't matter. I know God can raise it from the dead, from the elements, from the ashes. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But, uh, and this goes back to the previous caller who was talking about what we're going to be doing in heaven. Yeah. We'll have a body. We'll will. have jobs to do, fulfilling work. Work is not, not part as, of the curse. Not through with that body. He's going to renew it. He's going to restore it. And the analogy of sleep in the New Testament, it's not about the soul. It's not soul sleep. Every time you see that word sleep associated with death, it's about the body that is sleeping in Christian imagery. The body is asleep. And I think a, a burial is much more fitting with that kind of analogy. So I go with burial when I can, but it's not a matter of judgment or fellowship, really, if somebody goes with this cremation option. People need to think about the message they're sending, though, that kind of a practice. All right, folks, the number is, uh, well, we're out of time. I can't take any more calls. It looks like I've got a man named George on the line. George is our last caller. George, what's your question? He's off the line. David from Kaufman. David, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Is this... uh you're on the air. You're on the air, David. Okay, quick question. I was raised Catholic. We talked about purgatory. I fell away from the Catholic religion. Is this, 
I haven't read anything. I'm, I'm a Baptist now. I've never read anything about purgatory. Is that just a Catholic doctrine? All right. I'm going to ask Dr. Barry. you got 30 seconds to answer that question. Well, yes, it is. Purgatory is a part of the Roman Catholic tradition. It develops uh, progressively all the way from the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries. Is it biblical, though? That's what I want to know. No, it is not. We don't have the idea of a spiritual waiting room hoping that one day I'll have enough righteousness to get out and go to heaven. Jesus said to that thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Boy, that's the great promise. We've had a lot of great questions today, questions about the reality of heaven. It all comes back to this. Did Jesus really mean that when he said, I go to prepare a place for you? Did Jesus mean it when he said, Today you will be with me in paradise? Jesus said that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is not in purgatory. The Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Of course, the Lord is not in purgatory. I believe the Catholic notion of purgatory is an invention of confused theologians. Maybe they were um, well-intentioned on that. I think they made a big mistake on that. The Bible doesn't really teach purgatory at all. We've talked today about um, Islam. The fact is, Allah, the God of Islam, is not the God of the Bible, not Jehovah. He's not the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And certainly Jesus is not to be equated with Muhammad. Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again. Muhammad is in the grave. Muhammad was a false prophet. And Anna Nicole Smith reminds us that money, power, fame will not bring satisfaction. And certainly, we can't avoid death. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Jerry Johnson live from Criswell College. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.